Guess I can uh, lose the pants then. John, I can't not start the show by asking you to tell me the trash can story. So the trash can story, uh, I was lucky enough, um, in hindsight, unfortunate enough, to be able to go up to Vegas to count down uh, the hours to my 21st birthday back in 2010. And went up there, flew up, got checked into Encore Tower Suites, uh, thought it was going to be, you know, the, the final kind of crowning moment in, you know, being able to experience Las Vegas. Because uh, I had been a huge fan of the city when I was, uh, you know, in my early to late teens. And this was, this was it. This was going to be, you know, my first real trip to Vegas as an adult. And went to dinner at Lakeside uh, with uh, a friend and ordered sea bass innocuously enough. Thought, this looks good on the menu. What can be wrong with sea bass at a fine dining establishment like this? Uh, ate it, finished it, went on with the meal, got to the dessert course and went... Oh, God, I feel really full for some reason. Um, but okay, let's muscle through it. Let's go uh, count down the hours to turning 21. All right, it's midnight. Let me get a drink. I still really don't feel so well. Why do I not feel well? But okay, let's keep going. Let's gamble. Gets to like 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. And I'm going, I don't feel well. I need to go to bed. So I go back up to my room, try to get to sleep, can't get to sleep, toss and turn all night going, I'm sick, I'm really sick, something, something went terribly wrong, uh, I've made a huge mistake, and uh, got to probably about 8 in the morning, kind of maybe slept for an hour here, an hour there, woke up, showered, was nauseous, all, pretty much all of the symptoms of pretty terrible food poisoning. Um, and got this bug in my brain that, uh, you know, this was still my 21st birthday. I'm going to go <laughs> down. I am going to get some coffee in me, get a bagel or a croissant or, you know, some devil's food cake, donuts, something. I'm going to go down and celebrate my 21st birthday in Gamble. So I go and do that, and I'm still not feeling good. And whatever chocolate crawler thing I had certainly didn't help. So I go over to a craps table at Wynn and, you know, buy in. I'm shooting the dice, shooting the dice. I'm still going, I don't feel well. I feel a little nauseous. And right as I shoot the dice and roll it, I go, oh, God, this, this is whatever's going to happen here isn't going to end well. I need to find a bathroom really, really fast. And in my mind, I'm going, I've been in this building 300 times where's the nearest bathroom, where's the nearest bathroom, where's the nearest bathroom, before I blurt out at the poor dealer saying, where's the bathroom? He points in the direction uh, of the bathroom back towards the buffet along the, the promenade by the pool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, in hindsight, I don't think that's the closest bathroom to the craps pit, but <laughs> uh, I, I took off running, was probably about three strides in, and in the middle of Win Las Vegas and all its glory, um, you know, gave them their sea bass right back on that beautiful uh, <laughs> Roger Thomas designed carpet. Oh, um, no. Apologize profusely. This is incredibly embarrassing now that this is on the internet for everybody to hear. But uh, apologize profusely to everyone around me. Get up and go, I got to get to a bathroom still. So keep running. And I get right to those elevators uh, by the pool that take you down to the pool right. level. Sure. 
and see a bathroom and go, I'm not going to make it any farther and give them some more sea bass back in that, uh, in that garbage can right next to uh, those <laughs> pool elevators. And as I'm, you know, getting my breath back, I look up and right to my left is Mark Shore, uh, wow. the chief operating officer for Wynn Resorts at the time. Uh, and I just am shocked uh, because I know who he is and he's probably judging me profusely at the moment. <laughs> and then I promptly run over to the bathroom and try and clean myself up uh, and do that. And here's where the story takes the weirdest turn. Uh, I walked right back up to the craps table and put the <laughs> back up. Uh, that's the best part of the story. And so not to, uh, not to, uh, to spoil it, but if I'm not, if I'm not correct, there's like a, is it like a Yelp place or some, some one of the social networks has a, has a John Hall Memorial track. Yeah, it was, it was a four square location. Now I guess it's a swarm location or whatever app they've made that nobody really (laughs) uses anymore. Um, so there is the, uh, a location for the John A. Hall Memorial trash can and center for sea bass research, uh, (laughs) in the hallowed halls of Wynn Las Vegas. So I I love it. Well, uh, yeah. Well, I was just going to say thank you for uh, for sharing your story with us. That uh, it's one of my personal favorites. And I don't think I actually had heard the last bit where you just went right back to the craps table. <laughs> back to the craps table, which yeah. really just kind of crowns the whole thing. Um, for for those out there that are not familiar, our guest host this week is John Hall. John is a writer at VegasTripping.com and a longtime Vegas aficionado. Um, I think maybe the most egregious and outrageous part of your story is that you turned 21 in 2010. Uh, <laughs> but other than that, I can, uh, I can definitely appreciate your story. Um, yeah. Chuck Monster, our, uh, our regular co-host, is hiking the Appalachian Trail this week and is not available. But uh, we wish him well and uh, can't wait to see him next month at VIMF. And I do want to talk about VIMF a little bit before we get into our topics because this will be our last Vegas Gang episode before the live show. So uh, this is very exciting. Um, And we do have some stuff to talk about. So first up, there is going to be a VIMF app for the iPhone. Um, That's going to be coming out very soon. We're in the final testing stages now, so you'll be able to download that from the App Store, and it will be the best way to stay on top of changes in the event schedule or other announcements. Um, for those folks that are not iOS users, um, there is the VIMP schedule online at VegasInternetMafia.com. You can bookmark that on your um, other smartphones if you are so inclined. Um, that will also be kept up to date. Uh, I also wanted to make a note about the good folks at the You Can Bet on That podcast. So this is uh, a good, good friendly f- good friendly gambling folk that are going to be attending VIMP, and they wanted to... Uh, have an event on Friday that is abutting our icebreaker at 2 p.m. So starting at noon on Friday at Long Bar in the Craps Pit at the D, you can join the You Can Bet on That folks um, for a uh, hello and some friendly craps action. For So I encourage anybody that's a craps fan uh, to go and check that out. Um, they're really nice guys, and uh, all the folks associated with it are, are a lot of fun. So I Totally recommend it, and super glad that they're going to be attending, and uh, I think it's going to be great. So definitely support them and check it out. They're also um, 
on in their participants in the 500 Facebook group as well. You may know them from there. So anyway, the you can bet on that noon on Friday in the D Craps Pit adjacent to Long Bar there. Um, I also wanted to talk briefly about a new event we have this year. I, I can't recall exactly when we published the schedule. It may have been sort of adjacent with the last episode, but uh, the schedule includes a new event, which is the undercard. Um, the undercard is going to be a lot of fun. So this is going to be on Friday night, uh, sort of late night-ish. And while we are not going to reveal exactly what it will include, um, you can imagine, uh, I'll just give you a, a sense of the inspiration uh, for the event. So, you know, back in the, in the 1960s, legends of the, like the Rat Pack playing at the Sands, they would do their show. And of course, that show was amazing, and the folk, people that were lucky enough to be able to experience it still talk about it to this day. But what you also hear about is what happened afterwards, the 2 a.m. hangout in the lounge uh, at the Sands or at the Riviera or at the Sahara. Um, the sort of informal people are jumping up to do their thing, having a lot of laughs and, and sharing some drinks kind of vibe. And that's what we're going for with the undercard. And um, we're still uh, firming everything up, but we've got some pretty crazy, weird, fun ideas. Um, I expect it to be a complete mess in the best way possible. And uh, I think it will be a lot of fun. So it's going to be late night Friday thing. I encourage you to set aside time to attend. It's free. It'll be in the D show room, just like the main event. So it's sort of a, a preview of the main event in that in that regard. Um, but I think it will be a fun a fun new event. We're really looking forward to seeing how it turns out. Um, in addition, of course, as I mentioned a moment ago, the main event is Saturday at two p.m. That's going to be including live versions of this show, Five Hundred by Midnight. Um, also the Vegas Tripping Match Game, and uh, we're going to be announcing our interview guest for the show here. So we have traditionally had an interview, a live interview for the Vegas Gang Show for VIMF and its predecessor, the, the Vegas Podcast of Palooza, and we are lucky again this year to have a fantastic interview guest. Um, we're going to have Paul Steelman as our guest this year. And for folks that don't know his name, you are you should, because he is probably one of the most prolific casino architects in the entire business. Um, have you heard of a little hotel called The Mirage? Uh, he worked on that. Uh, how about Foxwoods in Connecticut, or the Steel Pier Project in Atlantic City, or Treasure Island, uh, or the Hard Rock in Biloxi? Um, that's just a small sample. He's worked extensively in Asia, uh, done a ton of work in Macau, done stuff for Las Vegas Sands, uh, and others. He is an um, incredibly interesting guy, um, that has a ton of experience. And one of the most interesting things, topics to hear him speak on is how Asia has changed his design sense and just what what he's learned about that market and how it's changed how he builds these buildings. So we're really lucky to have him. Um, I can't wait to interview him. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. He is, uh, he's, he's everywhere, and I think it's going to be a really interesting interview. So I'm very much looking forward to it. Um, thank you, Dave, for helping put that together. I very much appreciate that. And uh, it should be fun. So I think it's going to be great. He's uh, an interesting guy. I can't wait. Uh, we'll, we'll ask him. Uh, we can ask him about a Montreux project that never was. Huh. The, uh, the Even Phil with Ruffin. the jazz festival? 
<laughs> yeah, well, you know, yeah. he's he, he's one of those guys that has not only built a, a zillion buildings, but he's also been one of those guys that's called in to work to spec out projects that never become, right? So he's done a ton of spec work for things that didn't end up ever going, but um, he's uh, he's pretty much seen it all. So I think uh, it's going to be a good interview. Very much looking forward to it. So, cool. yes, Paul, Paul Stillman will be our guest. Yes, John, please. Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, but he's the, the lead architect on Resorts World, correct? Yes. Uh, yeah, so that is he, correct. That is going to be a fascinating conversation to see what has informed that, what has changed since the announcement, all that fun stuff. So if he can talk yeah. about it. Yeah, well, we'll try and pry it out of him. I mean, of course, I think that's really – he's been so successful – in the Asian markets, I think it was a natural choice to when they wanted to come over here and do something in in Las Vegas. Um, and I I don't know I can't wait to talk to him. So he he's a, a very interesting guy, and I'm very excited about it. I think it's going to be true Vegas gang, complete casino geek out nerd fest, and I can't wait. Um, the other thing that I'm not going to announce is uh, our special act. Our our uh, after-party concert on Saturday. Um, we're real close to being able to name names here, but we're not quite ready. Um, but uh, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. People won't be disappointed, so I think it's going to be a good one. And uh, that should be coming, I think, real soon. Things are looking real, like they're close to firmed up on that. So I can't wait to share that. Again, Vegas Internet Mafia Family Picnic, October 18th. Just over a month away, a month from tomorrow. Wow, yikes. Um, and uh, it's the events are free. The inter- in- information is at VegasInternetMafia.com. Um, you can also follow at Vimpf, V-I-M-F-P, on Twitter. Uh, the app will be in the App Store soon, which we will announce through all of our channels. And um, can't wait. Can't wait to see you there. It's going to be awesome. All right. Perfect. Let's do some topics. Um so it's funny. It's amazing how much can happen in a month. And um, in some ways, it, it, we see sort of the same stories uh, that continue to evolve. Um, and then we see some new things popping up. So we definitely have some interesting stuff to talk about tonight. And I want to start with SLS. So we, of course, have talked about SLS quite a bit, right? All the way back to the beginning of time when we were making fun of Sam Nazarian for not staying in his own hotel to proclaiming that it would never open to watching it come together to touring the facility to talking about the opening. The hotel is now open. It has accepted guests. And one of those guests is John Hall. So I would like to hear from you, John, uh, about your experience at the hotel. I can't wait to hear about it because I have, uh, I haven't experienced it yet myself, so I'm looking forward to hearing your take. Please tell us how your stay was. Yeah, absolutely. It was a generally positive stay. Uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, get a room in the Lux Tower, uh, which is their higher-end accommodation, which has got their their, um, offerings that are closer in amenities and, in some cases, sizing and spacing to what you would find at, you know, if not an Aria... You know, certainly a Mandalay Bay. Um, so very nice. Uh, it it was an interesting property to experience with it open. I mean, it was it was fun to see Sam Nazarian walking around in his ten percent of the casino. Uh, uh-huh. Clearly, 
not making any managerial decisions whatsoever, uh, not directing anything, but certainly <laughs> observing a lot of stuff. Um, I was actually really lucky enough to have been there with uh, uh, Tim and Michelle Dressen from Five Hundred by Midnight. We were able to organize a bit of a cross trip uh, where we were able to uh, experience the property and kind of share ideas and things like that. Um, but it is, like I said, generally positive. There, there are good things. The design of the rooms is nice in the Lux Tower. There, uh, the beds are comfortable. Things are well laid out. Uh, the technology works. The cell service is fantastic. The Wi-Fi is outrageously good. The bath amenities are great. Uh, the hotel and casino staff are exactly what you would expect to find from you know a for from a place run by a former wind lieutenant. I mean, they are. They're bright, they're engaging, uh, they really seem to care about the guest experience. Uh, and when you talk to a lot of the people who are working in the casino, at least, a lot of them were uh, former Win and Encore employees who were maybe working part-time and were offered full-time positions at uh, SLS. So they're very, they're very grateful, they really enjoy what they're doing, uh, and they create a great experience. Um, the other thing I was really kind of taken with, especially, and I know this has been said uh, by you, Dave, on the podcast previously, uh, the hotel areas, um, kind of excluding the casino, which with the open feel uh, kind of loses a lot of the energy, uh, but the hotel areas, the restaurant areas kind of uh, around the periphery of the casino are are well thought out. They're well designed. The, the uh, hotel areas are nice, uh, from the perk to the monkey bar to Koo Noodle, which is a fantastic restaurant. It's like China Poblano without the Poblano. Um, and I thought the one area that probably worked the best in the entire space, uh, was the Bazaar Casino, which is, uh, I, again, I believe this has been talked about is only open at night. Um, and it can kind of be forgotten about, but it's got this sort of sultry, luscious, you know, deep, you know, if you were to describe it like a donut, it'd be like a red velvet with Johnny Cream glaze kind of feel <laughs> to it. I'm really interested. I didn't mean to cut you off, because I'm, but I'm really interested to hear about this, because this, is this, this idea, if you sort of boil it down, has been tried elsewhere, right? We saw Casino Caban as a cosmopolitan, not as extensive mm -hmm. as this, but we see the deuce at Aria, kind yeah. of the same idea, mm -hmm. but those haven't really worked. So what is it about, about the Bizarre Casino at SLS that it seems like it's a better take on this concept? Uh, well, the fact that you, if you're playing at the tables, you can get comped uh, Jose Andres's mixology drinks gives it a leg up over a lot of the competition. But uh, I think as of right now, they're not positioning it in terms of table limits like a deuce or even like the casino cabanas. I, I was able to find uh, both nights I was there $10 tables in this higher-end casino. Uh, and it's, it's a little funny because that room, I would say, works really, really well. And if you were to walk into it without knowing anything about the property, you would walk into this space and think, this is their high-limit room. 
this is this is cordoned off. It's a little secretive. Uh, the lighting is really dark, and you get that kind of smoky feel to it, almost, where it's got like almost like that that secret back room quality. And you would expect this to be the secluded space where people are are wagering a lot of money, uh, and it's not, which is a good thing. But I think it's also a bit of a bad thing for the property because I don't think the high limit room that they have now works well at all. It's uh, it's almost like that triple eight Baccarat box at downtown ah. Grand. Yep. It's it's a small cutout in the corner. It's got a fishbowl effect to it because nobody's really secluded. It's got about six, uh, four or six Baccarat tables right in the center of the room. Everybody's just kind of sitting there very politely with their hands on the table because no one's in there. And it doesn't feel like the space you would want to wager a lot of money in. So the Bizarre Casino feels like that. And I think... Over time, you know, if you, I'm sure if you were to ask uh, someone like Rob Osland, what's working now, what's not working now, I would think the, the Bazaar Casino works because it's busy. They're getting people in there, which is good to see. But I wouldn't be surprised to see that pivot and turn into their, their higher-end uh, gaming ability. Um, Interesting. Which, which would be a positive thing. And, you know, they, it, speaking of gaming amenities, to kind of pivot into the stuff that that doesn't work well, I would say, yeah. at least from my experience, in all of the the marketing and the interviews and everything, all of the PR leading up to the opening, the, the line was, this is going to be a casino on the strip that markets towards locals, right? Uh, this is going to be a place that's going to bring locals in, uh, that's going to get them to gamble there, and... Maybe they didn't say it explicitly, but I believe the implication was they're going to be lower table limits than you would find on the strip because they're not going to be able to get people who would, you know, wager cosmopolitan level limits, Bellagio level limits, Aria level limits in SLS. And from what I saw the two evenings I was there and uh, they were two, one was a Sunday, one was a Monday. Uh, it wasn't a holiday weekend. It wasn't a particularly busy weekend to begin with. In fact, the the city was getting the remnants of uh, a of the hurricane uh, that was in the area at the time. Uh, so the city was practically flooded. Um, on most nights, uh, the average table limit I saw was about fifteen dollars per table uh, in the blackjack areas which is what you can easily find at a Cosmopolitan or a Bellagio or an Aria or a Wynn uh, or Encore on any given weekday night. So I don't think they're quite living up to that expectation, which I think is a shame because you're finding one $5 table, one single $5 table on the floor that's packed with people and a bunch of empty $15 tables that nobody's walking up to. So it's almost almost a Cosmopolitan level effect that that property saw when they opened, um, right. which is a shame because I thought they had anticipated that. So uh, I, wait, oh, I'm going to stop you, stop you for a second. I definitely have more questions and want to hear more about your trip, but I want to segue to Dave for a minute. Um, Dave, you are a Las Vegas local. You are mm-hmm. in their target market. How many times have you visited SLS since it has opened? Since opening night, I've not, but that's because I've been incredibly busy. And I honestly, I don't think I've been to any casinos. Okay, so it's well, through no fault of theirs, and I have actually been enough. meaning. I have meaning to go down there 
and put a couple of bucks into a slot machine and see what kind of promotional offers I get to kind of get into their queue like I am with everybody else. So I do intend to visit. So do you have a sense? <laughs> yeah, well, do, beyond your own experience, do you have any sense if if people are talking about SLS in the community? Is it is it a topic that has come up at all? Yeah, I've heard people talking. I think a lot of people are checking it out. It's been a mixed reaction. I think most people are aware that it was done on a much more limited budget than places like Wynn or even places like Red Rock and Aliante. So they're aware of that. And most people have been pretty positive about it. They seem to think it's got a nice feel. Oh, so we, we will see what happens. I agree with John about the high limit area. I have the feeling this is just a suspicion. This is not the truth. I don't know this from talking to anybody there. This is just my own speculation that they just kind of included that so they would be able to say to the investors or to whoever that, yes, we do have a high limit room. Because just walking by it, I could see they had slot machines in there and in my experience, usually you don't mix high-limit slots and high-limit tables. They're just not, not usually found in the same room. So I don't think this is really going to be a core of their business. I think hmm. it's probably something that's going to change. It would make a lot of sense to have that in the Bazaar Casino, which is set up pretty nicely and which is pretty sweet. Okay. Well, good. All right. Well, thank you, Dave, for that insight. Um, John, I don't know if you were going in a particular direction, if you've got – I, I want to make sure we get the whole feel, but I yeah. want to make sure I also ask you about food, like where you mm -hmm. ate. If you ate on property, where you ate, what was the experience like? Yeah. So uh, that actually brings up an interesting point. There are probably about maybe two or three more uh, that I've got, and this is one of them. Um, I ate at one restaurant on property, uh, and that was Koo Noodle, which was fantastic. Um, they did a really good job. It's an it's a nice space. It's got like a you know modern Beijing subway waiting area kind of feel to it that works well, um, and the food was really good. Uh, it's exactly what you would expect of a, a Jose Andres Chinese restaurant. Uh, also uh, stopped by the Umami Sportsbook Beer Garden and uh, Donut Shop or whatever it is over outside, which is a, a nice space. It's, it's quite nice to see uh, the strip go by from out there in that sort of dressed down kind of beer garden environment. Uh, you know, just had the secret cheesy tater tots that have been going around all of a sudden. Uh, but didn't really experience it, any of the other restaurants, primarily because, and this, this is something I've been thinking about a lot, as, as someone who myself lives in Los Angeles uh, and was fortunate enough to be part of the, the Vegas Tripping preview series of all of the you know, forthcoming SLS restaurants or restaurants that are owned by SBE, I, I, there's no compelling reason for me when I'm in Las Vegas... Hmm. to certainly go out of my way to eat at any of the properties there or any of the restaurants there. And I don't know if, so let's say their target demographic is this tribe that Sam Nazarian has talked about. That is fine and well, and it's, it very almost certainly is an international demographic, but their feeder market is still probably Los Angeles. I think they might, they're probably still going to have a tough time convincing people to spend more than what I believe they would spend here in LA from my experience 
to eat at those restaurants that they can find when they're back home. And that, that kind of goes back to the core of Vegas escapism a little bit. So right. uh, I, I think that's going to be a challenge. In, in my observations, walking around the property, outside of you know the Griddle Cafe with the sugar-infused, sprinkle-covered, jelly-filled, powdered strawberry uh, <laughs> pancakes that they're serving everywhere... I didn't see busy restaurants on property. Now, again, there was, you know, a hurricane going on outside. So people may have not been going out of their way to visit the property at the time, but I didn't see a lot of busy F and B while I was there. It's super interesting, right? Because they've framed their uh, F and B situation as a huge advantage as, as proven concepts, right? Mm -hmm. We've done this in other markets. It's worked really well, but you make a good point that sort of cuts both ways as Los Angeles is this huge, important market for Las Vegas visitors. If they feel like it's something that they can get at home, they may be less inclined to go check it out uh, when there are so many other choices on the strip that are not available to them at home. Exactly. I mean, why? And again, I, I could be completely off base here. If we may get six months from now and these places are all going to be busy night after night, but why go out of your way to go to an Umami burger when there's one in Los Angeles, when you could go to the Gordon Ramsay burger joint that doesn't exist anywhere else or, you know, go, go to Shake Shack, which is going to end up being in the park concept at MGM, which doesn't exist on the West Coast. So right. why, you know, why eat what you can get when you're back home when you're out of town? Um, so that that was an element of it uh, that that again I kind of raised my eyebrow at a little bit. The the thing that got me the most, or that that confused me the most, and I thought for a property that's being run by seasoned, not only seasoned. Las Vegas casino resort hotel operators, but uh, seasoned hotel operators in general who have opened properties in Los Angeles and you know South Beach and are going to bring up places in New York is the numbering convention in the actual towers, which kind of baffled me. So, so yes, we all know this, that this baffled me too. Did it? Okay, so yes. the, the, it it drove me insane, and if. I, if I would have been really, truly inebriated after coming back from a night, uh, it, I probably very well couldn't have gotten to my room. You've got three hotel towers, right? Story, World, and Lux. Each one of those is given a numerical designation. So I believe Story is one, Lux is two, and World is three to differentiate it for their own organizational purposes. So you can be assigned to, let's say, I don't know, the 21st floor in the Lux Tower in room 06. So your technical room number is 2106 in the second tower. So you get into your elevator, slide your key card, push 21, and you get out of the, out of the elevator. Because you're in this tower, you look at all of the room numbers and you think, wait a minute, am I on the 22nd floor? Ah. What? What what is this? And and the entire group I was with was confused immediately getting off the floor. We looked at the elevator and went, no, this is the twenty first floor. Looked at all of the signs, thinking, well, that very clearly says it's or implies that this is the twenty second floor. And wow. the, the house key. This is where you know it's already been a problem 
three three or so weeks into operation, the housekeeping uh, woman looks at us and looks up at the room numbers and puts her hand over the first two and says, just ignore that one. <laughs> and, and off we go over to my room. That, that one, that one kind of baffles me that wow. an idea like that, you know, came to fruition. That's fascinating. I love that example because it's just like, it's such a good example of how bad design completely ruins something, right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. like you could fix that in so many different ways. I understand that they need to have some designations for all kinds of internal routing and telephones and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But if you literally are – if every customer is coming off the elevator and doesn't know what floor they're on – that is ridiculously bad. I bet they've, oh, they're going to have to fix that somehow. Even yeah. if they just change the signs and put a dash in there or something. I don't know yeah. what they do. but Do, do they have the money to do that? Ha, <laughs> excellent question. It's, but it is, it is kind of amazing that people that are very, you know, they, these people, it's not their first rodeo, right? So you would expect a problem like that. I, I'm surprised to see that something like that would pop up. I mean, of course, there's always unforeseen stuff. You're like, oh, wow, people reacted that way to that, and you never know. But that yeah. seems like an unforced error, um, yeah. if, if you're asking me. That's fascinating. Well, I think it's, okay. the, it's the kind of thing that when you're surrounded by it and we're, when you're living around it and you're embedded in the project so much, I think it makes sense because it's logical, but it's not what you're used to seeing. So I can see how you could have a blind spot for that. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Uh, at the same time, it clearly sounds like it's an issue, right? So either yeah. have to do, do something or else it's forever going to be the place that has the weird numbers. Um, uh, so, John, I thank you so much for sharing all that info. Uh, we've got some other topics I definitely want to get to, but before yeah. we move on, anything else about SLS you want to share before we, before we move on? That's it. The only other weird thing, and this is just a quick one-minute thing, all of the restrooms in the casino, uh, all of the actual stalls, have that nightclub narcotics warning placed uh, in all right. of them. Yep. Even though even though you're not in a nightclub, per se, or in a lounge, all every single public-facing restroom, which is something I've never seen before and thought, that's a little odd, unless the whole place is just one big nightclub. Huh. And it's interesting. There was a, for a while, and I don't think it's there anymore, but Treasure Island had it in one of their normal casino restrooms, and I always thought mm-hmm. it was strange because it was out of place. It just didn't, mm-hmm. didn't fit. But yeah, it's one of those interesting things. I don't know how much of that is governed by regulation and X yeah. feet from nightclub must have this sign kind of thing. But yeah, um, yeah no, that's really interesting. Um, I, you know, I am fascinated by SLS, of course. New place. Can't wait to see how it does. I'm very curious about sort of the volumes in the in the casino and in the restaurants since it's open. Of course, the opening weekend's going to be a big deal, and uh, you sort of expect the new new casino shine to wear off over time. And it, the real question is, what's the staying power going to be? And if you walk in there on a random night, is are there enough people in there to make it make it seem like it's happening? And I, I'm really curious to see how that flushes out. Um, Bizarre Meat, the Jose Andrews restaurant, has been getting some really good reviews. Um, I'm looking forward to trying it someday. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. SLS continues to be really interesting. Um, clearly too soon to judge, but, uh, can't wait to get some more info and I'm looking forward to seeing it for myself in just a couple of weeks. So should be fun. Yeah. We'll say for the restaurants. I really enjoy Cleo. Yeah. Ate their opening night and that was pretty good. 
Yeah, Cleo was fantastic here in Los Angeles. If that's if that's going to be one of the restaurants that's the standout, uh, that that will be the one. It seems like it's a you know it's somewhat unique. I I uh, I didn't mention it, but I absolutely would love to try it. I've since reading the VT review and hearing what people have said about the Vegas version, it sounds like it's great, and so I'm very much looking forward to trying it as well. Um, okay, well, let's zoom from Las Vegas across to the special administrative region of Macau. Um, Macau, of course, has been like the Cinderella, wonderful, perfect, awesome, maybe Cinderella without the bad parts. Um, this wonderful story about success. Macau can do no wrong. Macau is the world's biggest market. Macau is the place where you go to print money in a basement in your building. Macau is fantastic, except for the last couple of months, um, where the news has been less than great. Um, we're seeing a, tr- well, maybe it's too early to call it a trend, but we've been seeing uh, some drop in the month-to-month uh, casino uh revenues in these places, which is somewhat alarming. And people are tying this to changes in the political atmosphere in China. The president of China has been cracking down on corruption and the it's it's a little bit harder to as a this gets into a lot of conjecture, but the whole apparatus is looking less fondly upon public officials that may or may not be spending money in ways they're not supposed to be spending it. Um, spending, losing conspicuously in a casino seems like it's a little bit out of style in that uh, in that environment. If you're a, especially if you're a Chinese official, and um, my understanding is that they're changing some of the rules when it comes to money laundering in the area, which has also seemed to have an impact. Uh, I'm Dave. I really want to talk to you about this because Macau has been like the wonderkind of the casino world. Is this a real thing? Is Macau hitting a speed bump? Is this uh, a serious problem? What's going on here? It's definitely a speed bump, but I don't think it's a fatal decline. I think that what you're going to see is you're going to see the the mass and the premium mass market start to pick up a little bit. Because that definitely is a lot of demand. There's a lot of people in China who want to gamble. Are there also maybe some people who are being hindered by these corruption probes and these crackdowns? Yeah, it certainly does look that way. So you're losing that market. But I think the the gains that stand to be made in the mass market and premium mass market are so big that you're going to see companies still going ahead with their investments in Macau, like LVS, Wynn, and MGM. Right. So, of course... We're talking. We're on the cusp of major new resorts opening in Kotai, right? Billions of dollars of investment from American companies, from Chinese companies, from companies around the world that are in that market. Um, that's so. That's an interesting question. I mean, do we have a good sense from the Chinese government how they're obviously trying to? They're managing this whole situation very closely, right? They can control the flow in and out of Macau. They have a lot of levers they can push and pull to try and sort of make this whole thing work. Do we have any sense as far as uh, what direction they're trying to go? I mean, is it the kind of thing where these companies are going to be allowed to make a certain amount of money? They may be, maybe not the outsized profits that they've been making over the last few years. I mean, let's not forget that companies like Las Vegas Sands and Wynn have basically had their balance sheets saved, and MGM to a lesser degree, had their balance sheets saved by Macau over the last few years. Yeah, I think that's definitely going to be a factor. You're going to see them, probably you're going to see the growth slowing 
a little bit, but I think ultimately once you get into 2016 and 17 when all that new product starts to come in the market, you're going to see it start to pick up again. And because there is that big pent-up demand in China, I don't think you're going to see it fade permanently. I don't think this is a case like you've had in the U.S. since the recession where people suddenly have a lot less money and are coming to Las Vegas less. I think there's still a lot of demand there. There's even been speculation that this is going to shift some of the ultra-high rollers to other markets like Las Vegas. So it hmm. might end up benefiting Las Vegas in the end. Interesting. So, uh, John, of course, we're looking at uh, you know huge new properties like Wind Palace coming online. What's your interest in Macau and Kotai? As somebody that travels to Las Vegas a lot, that writes about Las Vegas, that visits casinos and other jurisdictions, are you yeah. interested in Macau? Oh, absolutely. I, I thoroughly believe that I will be in Macau in early 2016 to see Wind Palace. If not for any other reason than to see what could very well be Steve Wynn's last major property, his last kind of you know symphony or piece or masterpiece. Um, so I, I'm I'm fascinated by it. I'm fascinated by you know kind of tracking back to Paul Steelman a little bit. The the cultural differences in design influences. You know how a port-a-cashier becomes significantly less important because you're not relying on car traffic to get to a property. You're relying more on bus traffic. Things like that. As someone who is fascinated by casino design and the movement of people in the infrastructure, I want to see and I you know want to see the differences. Want to see how table games work there differently as opposed to to here in the states. Um, and it it ha it's been interesting watching this happen. Um, and again, I, I would agree with Dave. I don't, I don't think this is, you know, the canary in the coal mine that, that things are about to fall apart in Macau, but it's fascinating, especially just, or especially to look at after Steve Wynn recently did his, um, his interview with, uh, I believe it was the Hoover Institute from right. Stanford, um, wherein, he was talking about Atlantic City, and it's really interesting to see that juxtaposed against everything that's happened in Atlantic City, you know, over the last number of years, especially in the last couple of months with the closures and how you can go from, you know, gangbusters, boom times to a very different period. Now, I don't think, I would not say Macau is Atlantic City in any way, shape, or form. Uh, I think that the challenges and the opportunities are both very different. Uh, but it, it's certainly interesting to see how, as you go into a slower period in Macau, and you have to start reconsidering, well, what, what is Macau going to do to evolve after these next properties come, come online? What, what's the next 10 years, the next 20 years going to look like to avoid that kind of future? What's the, the investment in infrastructure have to look like? What does the investment in entertainment, in the workforce, all of these things in a, a more diverse economy that's going to ensure Macau follows the path of a Las Vegas as opposed to in the long run in Atlantic City. And then you start asking, well, you know, what, what, if the PRC suddenly decides to change course on, on gaming, whether that's, you know, reducing the number of visas people can have to go into Macau, or, and this is probably never going to happen, this is pure speculation, opening up state or opening up, you know, domestic 
right. gaming in China, in, in Guangzhou, in Chengdu, in Shenzhen, in the South China Sea, what does that do to Macau? So there, there are a lot of questions, and I'm sure there are a lot of really highly paid, well-educated people, I would hope, at Wind Resorts, at MGM, at LVS, who are thinking about that to protect this golden goose. Um, right. But it, it, it's a very interesting dynamic, and a very small part of me, maybe you know, a, a moderately large part of me, kind of wants to see an environment where you know maybe things go to pot there a little bit, and Steve Wynn, you know, returns, you know, Chinese businessman Steve Wynn returns to America with less than positive things to say in the end about that, you know, kind of that reversal in course that you kind of saw in that interview with the Hoover Institute where, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking on Atlantic City now is very easy where Steve Wynn can say, I saw the writing on the wall, I saw the lack of investment, I saw this. But if I had to guess based on what he said, you know, about his experiences in Macau, I'm sure he was saying, you know, he had a different tune 30 right. years ago. So it, it, it's all a very interesting dynamic to observe farther afield. I agree. I think that's really interesting, right? Especially as we see jurisdictions potentially opening up. We're talking about Japan and other mm-hmm. places. There, you know, capital is at least somewhat limited, even for even for places like these casinos that, in some cases, are more or less like profit factories. These companies can only, whether they're limited by their capital or their human capital, they can only focus on so many things at once. So do they build their fourth Macau resort or do they build in Japan or do they build the next place that's going to legalize this stuff? So it will be really interesting to see how this works. And, of course, you know what I think both you and Dave touched on, the, the potential supply is – is at the moment it looks like you know going to be fairly robust, but the demand could be astounding. It really depends on how much those levers are turned, right? If they open up the spigot, they could create an amazing amount of demand because there just are so many people in China, and because through its rise, uh, turning into the economy that it's becoming, it's it's made a lot of people very rich. And um, there is a lot of money to go around and a lot of people that do want to gamble. So I think it is really a fascinating fascinating story um, to see how it's going. Uh, it's also interesting to look at how these reports have impacted the stocks of these gaming operators that are so independent on Macau. They haven't really been significantly impacted. And so it's, um, it's clearly the market is not too worried about this. I think the sort of general consensus seems to be that uh, well, it's not good news. It's not the end of the world either. No, and I think it also shows how the high end is very lucrative, but it's also very fragile. And it's been that way for a long time. This is one of the reasons why the gaming industry was so strong. It got so much investment from the mainstream financial community in the 90s because Circus Circus Enterprises and then Steve Wynn built models where you were getting money from a lot of different people. And it wasn't just waiting for two or three high rollers to come in each weekend. I think that's right. it's important to remember that, that you've got to build a diverse business. That's why Las Vegas has bounced back, because it's built that diverse business. So this yep. is going to be important there, too. This is why the integrated resort model is such a big deal. On one hand, yes, it's very good PR, when you go to a place like Singapore and say we're not just opening a gambling hall, we're opening an integrated resort, it's got these convention facilities and it's going to boost tourism, which it actually has done in Singapore. But it also makes a lot of financial sense because you have a lot more ways to make money. Yeah. 
Absolutely. No, I think it's it's interesting. Um, I, if if nothing else, it shows that all markets are subject to fluctuation, um, and uh, you know it, it. We see this across uh, many industries, right? So not to make every story about. Apple, but um, Apple wanted to release their iPhone 6 this week in China. That was their goal. And mysteriously, it's not going to be available on launch day because the Chinese government, for whatever reason, is delaying it. And it's really complicated internal politics and just shows how much power that government has over all of this kind of stuff. If you want to play in their sandbox, you have to abide by the rules. You have to, you know, make friends with the right people, etc., etc. And when we talk about, you know, them reforming certain things, making certain changes. They do have a lot of power there. It's, it's fascinating to watch that dynamic play out. Um, okay, so that's Macau. Uh, I want to try and shift back to um, the United States for a minute to talk about Atlantic City a little bit. We, of course, it's been in the news since we last talked. Uh, Revel has closed, so we had talked about that coming up uh, on our last show, and, and it did come to pass. Um, not to belabor that point, but what I did think was notable and at least interesting was just the fact that we've learned that a there's been a bid made for Revel, right? So Revel, I think, cost $2.4 billion to build, um, and there's been a bid made uh, for $90 million, um, which is an astounding figure, right? I mean, it's it's nothing near what it costs to make, what it costs to create. So it it if that's the bid that is accepted, I think it... It is meaningful. It is an important figure. Um, I guess, you know, Dave, as an Atlantic City native, as someone that has a lot to say on the topic, what does this say to you? I think it says that that bid for Trump Plaza of $20 million last year might have been generous. Yeah. If somebody's willing to pay $20 million for the right to put another $150, $200 million in Trump Plaza, you know, last year, the fact that somebody's willing to spend $90 million on a resort that cost $2.4 billion two years ago says a lot definitely says that the market's challenged and the fact that the guy who's doing it is some guy from florida who's been into polo and country clubs and says he just wants a hobby that's kind of different you don't really steve Wynn said stuff kind of flippantly well i just opened i built Wynn as a birthday present for elaine but everybody knew that wasn't really why he did it he did it because he is a casino developer, and this was a great opportunity, and he got a great deal in the desert inland, and according to him, Kirk basically paid him to go into business with the Mirage deal. So he, it's not really what I would say if I was going into a new market, especially someplace where you have a lot of people, 8,000 people are unemployed now, or they hadn't been, and say, oh yeah, I just need a new hobby, and this is it. So I don't know really what's going on there. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, of course, the numbers are astounding, um, and it really, if if it plays out, it, you know, uh, clearly, we we would all hope that it would go for a lot more, and it is terrible to see the folks that are now unemployed. I mean, I if if it means that Revel reopens and they get to rehire a bunch of folks, maybe that's a silver lining. I mean, I don't, I guess I don't really care if a bunch of bankers lose a bunch of money, but. Um, it does. The numbers themselves are are pretty are pretty astounding. And on the flip side, we're seeing at the same time MGM coming back into the Atlantic City market. So they were famously sort of kicked out by regulators due to their association with Pansy Ho, who's their partner in China in Macau. Um, apparently, New Jersey is now ready to accept them back. Um, it's you know, on on the face of it, it's they're saying well. 
Pansy's position has been diluted through a public stock offering and her relationship to her father, who is, you know, not in good health. Um, that was their primary concern. And since he's no longer really doing much because he's been so sick and he's old, maybe she's not as unsuitable as we thought. But I guess I don't not to sort of ascribe motives to people, but how much do you think this has to do them being it's it how how much of this is the changes in circumstances of MGM's background versus changes in circumstances in New Jersey that they're being welcomed back? I think it's probably more what MGM has done since they chose to leave the market. I think the fact that they're licensed by so many other jurisdictions played into it. Back when I could see the regulators in New Jersey maybe thinking, well, we'll be the ones to make a stand and run up this hill and go do something, and then, well, nobody else does, and you look kind of foolish. And the fact is that MGM's been found suitable in many other jurisdictions, and I think that probably played a bigger role in it than anything going on internally in New Jersey, just because they're so, you know, I, I think New Jersey regulators have tended to sometimes not see the forest for the trees and not seem to get the message of, hey, we want to build a healthy gaming industry here as opposed to we want to make people jump through a lot of hoops. And Hmm. we're doing them a huge favor by letting them invest billions of dollars in our state, in our city. So that might change. You know, what's exciting is the fact that you may see, and this is May, 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 you might see MGM open up a casino there maybe to get a crack at the online market. Hmm, so that could be that could be interesting if they have if that happens. Again, it's a really low cost of entry. If you look at them spending nine hundred and twenty five million to build a casino outside DC, right. spending another fifty million or sixty million or a hundred million to buy something and then maybe a little bit more to rebrand it isn't insane, especially when you consider that the tax rate is only nine and a quarter percent. So if you've got right. enough really big high rollers in the East Coast, to me it would make a lot of sense. Now I don't know whether you can say that because you don't want to tell states that you're going for licenses and that yeah we're going to siphon people out of here in other in another jurisdiction. But I think on one level it might make some sense. And definitely if you look at what Mohegan has done, they've got their casino in Connecticut. They've also have the casino in Pennsylvania and they have one in Atlantic City they're finding some value in having that sort of larger regional approach. So to me, it could make some sense. John, what's your thoughts on Lake City? Have you been? I don't know. What's what, How do you feel I, about AC? Yeah, I have never been. I almost went uh, this last winter and I had to abruptly cancel at the last minute, but wanted to see Rebel, uh, wanted to see Borgata because of everything I've heard. Um, and it, if, you know, to kind of track back to the Rebel piece, if it's the $90 million uh, price tag, I mean, it's kind of been talked about in some other areas, but that just shows that even, you know, Landry's got hosed in, in their purchase price of the marina and what they had to invest in it when someone can walk into a fully built integrated resort and get it for $90 million as a new hobby. So it's something I would love to see. Uh, I don't know if and when I'll ever get back there, but it would be nice to see MGM, you know, get into that market. I I don't think they would ever develop the, the city center East project that they had once envisioned to build back there on the, the, the Marina site, or is that the, the Renaissance point site? Uh, over there uh, mm-hmm. that, that Wynn once had for, for Le Hardin. Um, 
but it, it would be fascinated to, fascinating to see them get back into that market and build out a a more robust operation that could compete against you know Caesar's regional operations. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's fascinating to see. I hope that um, whoever ends up in control of Revel uh, are able to reopen it. I mean, it you know, it just it just seems wrong to have the newest and ostensibly nicest place uh, on the boardwalk closed, shuttered. I mean, that's just it. That's a that that cannot stand. Um, so I'm it, if nothing else, I'm hoping that. Um, they're able to turn that over and get it back open, get put some people back to work, um, turn the lights back on, and make that happen. Uh, but uh, I, you know, I, I always sort of thought that uh, New Jersey was being too hard on MGM. I mean, I don't. I every state is entitled to make their own decisions about how they regulate their casino industries, of course. But uh, you know, MGM is bef- well, long before the original issue with their license in New Jersey. They had been in good standing there. They had been good standing in many other places. Um, for whatever reason, New Jersey's regulators decided to take a stand. I was never super supportive of that idea. It seemed a little bit extreme to me based on all the other things they were doing. But, um, you know, I'm happy to see that MGM is able to come back, and hopefully that means uh, more good things. Um, New Jersey definitely needs it, so I welcome it. Well, I mean, keep in mind, New Jersey are the people that wouldn't let Hilton Hotels in back in 1985. Yeah. Oh, so, they have a long long history yeah. of turning people down. There's no they, doubt about it. They it wouldn't let Hugh Hefner in. So, yeah. Well, <laughs> well I, I don't know if I'd put Hugh Hefner and MGM Mirage in the same category, but no. I, I, I hear what you're saying. I, I'm just I, – I always felt like it was a little extreme. Like it was sort of like this – uh, like a bet that went too far, almost. <laughs> like they they were hoping to get some concessions, and then it kind of spun out of control. I don't know. I never really. It, it seemed like it, it was. It always seemed a little out of place to me um, to kick to kick a company like MGM out of the state. But you know what? It it happened. It's we are where we are. It it. I think it's good that they're able to come back. Um, they've had a long history there, so I hope they're able to. To, to do more more in the future. Um, okay, so there's a couple more things I wanted to touch on before we wrap up. Uh, hopefully we can go through this stuff pretty quickly. One is uh, Caesars and their debt load, and this is a long-standing topic on the show, and it's, in, in a macro sense, maybe pretty boring. Um, but I think it's at least notable, if nothing else, to talk about for just a quick moment because it seems like it's getting more play more people are becoming more can either it, they're more interested because it the whole situation is even more confusing than it's ever been but there was a story in the new york times about how crazy caesar's balancing act has become right this is a story that we've been talking about for quite a while because they've been shuffling assets from one entity to another um, moving debt around and uh in the past couple of months, they've been sued by shareholders and bondholders, and it they've been they've been uh, put under higher level of scrutiny for their activities than in the past. I mean, I think a lot of folks have been looking at this like we're not really sure if they're going to be able to pull this off, right? They're clearly trying to stave off the some might say inevitable, but a bankruptcy or some other kind of action like that. They're trying to move things around so they can prevent that. They can buy enough time that they can sort of reduce their debt load and get out of the woods. It's sort of this constant balancing act. 
and um, it's become interesting enough. I my favorite my favorite quote. There was an RJ story about this again a couple maybe a week ago. Gary Loveman was talking about the three different companies that they have now, which runs which run the debt. Right there's the original company, which like has all the debt, and there's the two new companies they've created to sell assets to that have almost no debt and have these assets. Um, two, he, he was talking about the three companies, and he says two of which are in very good health. A third is over over levered and has pressing debt issues. Well, yeah. So the original company that you tried to take private is the one that has pressing debt issues. The new ones you created to do like Enron style accounting are the ones that are in good health. Um, I I don't know. I thought it was funny. It made it sound like nothing to see here. Everything's fine. Like don't worry. <laughs> Um, which I think is uh, inaccurate. I mean, I, you know, who knows what's going to happen? Maybe they'll pull this off. A lot of this stuff is about timing, but um, it's clearly possible that they could fail to be able to move this forward and end up in some kind of bankruptcy. I mean, that's definitely possible given how much debt they have. Uh, I don't know. Any any further thoughts on Caesars at this point? Do we have any sense of whether things are getting in terms of their financial condition, getting better, getting worse, kind of staying the same. We've been talking about this for so long. It seems like something's got to be moving in one direction or another. Uh, yeah, I don't know off the top of my head when the next big debt maturity happens. So I thought they'd stave it off until 2015 or 2016. But I'm well, not I think, sure. I think that's what some of these asset sales were about, right? Like creating yeah. subsidiaries, selling assets to those so they could pay off the really terrible maturities that were due really soon that had really bad interest rates. They could kind of basically buying themselves some more time, right? But it seems like it's this constant temporary cat and mouse kind of game. It, it certainly seems like a story that's not – that, that's more outlandish than what you've seen in the financial and business world, but it's really not significantly different than than you know Time Warner bundling all of the underperforming assets that will probably die a slow death in the future, uh, primarily their print industries, into one company, jettisoning jettisoning it off, and focusing on the higher growth assets. It's just it's just almost clown like this go around with what Caesars is doing, the way they're moving right. things between three companies. So uh, I, I don't see an end game. I, and, I, and I hope that they, do, they are able to stave off some calamity. But I don't, I don't really see an end game other than moving the highest performing and the most lucrative assets to the two sub-corporations uh, and finding a way to get total rewards over there, which seems to be a huge bone of contention right now in things that I've read to get ownership of that into one of those um, more stable corporations. And then, you know, letting, letting the market wreak havoc on the mother corporation and just, you know, weeping by the side while this thing falls off the cliff. Yeah, I mean, uh, that, that's the trick, right? Is they're trying to kind of move, strategically move assets, and that's where they've, they've now moved enough of them that people that have, uh, that have bought bonds in the original company are starting to get pissed off. They're like, well, yeah. wait, you're, you're raping this company and removing everything of its value. You can't mm-hmm. do that, right? So that's where they're at right now with these lawsuits that are challenging whether or not these asset transfers are legal. Uh, I don't know. It's um, we don't need to dwell on this anymore because it gets into just financial arcana. But um, I, I think it is interesting. As the story continues, Gary Loveman's quote was amazing. 
Um, nothing to see here, folks. Just keep on moving on. Everything's going to be fine. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Yes, One exactly. Thing found interesting was in early September, I got an email from Total Rewards saying that their email address has changed. And the new email is email at email.caesarsmarketing.com. Hmm. Which I find interesting, which is around yeah. the time that there was a headline saying they might spin off Total Rewards. So I don't know what role that plays in all of this, but I'm thinking it might play some kind of role. But I don't know what no, role. It- no, it's interesting. I mean, they may be behind the scenes sort of slicing and dicing up different assets and assigning assigning intellectual property to certain LLCs and whatnot. Yeah, it very well could be could be related to that, absolutely. It struck me as funny because for the past 10 or 15 years, it's all been all about building up the brand of Total Rewards where they have Total Vegas and Total Experiences and all these other things with that brand. And then suddenly, oh, we're going to change the name of the – we're going to change the email address to caesarsmarketing.com. Right. Seems kind of odd to me. No, it's, it's, it's interesting. Very interesting. Uh, well, of course, we're going to continue to pay attention to what's going on with Caesars. Uh, if, if they do run into significant trouble, it will be really interesting to see how that might unravel. But, of course, that's premature at this point to discuss. Um, the last thing I wanted to talk about real quickly before we go – is Boston, right? So Boston has been this long, long, drawn-out situation for uh, the Mohegan Sun folks is that's, and the Wynn folks, right? I've got the two parties correct. Um, both are trying to get a license for that region. Uh, there's been, it's been forever. There's been some really interesting testimony before the Gaming Commission in Massachusetts um, that generated a lot of interesting documentation, if you like reading that kind of stuff. Um, but... Finally, we have uh, we have Wynn, who has ended up winning that concession. So it sounds like the folks at Wynn are going to be able to build the resort. Now, to me, the fascinating thing is that it comes with sort of strings attached. Because Steve Wynn, master of the casino design universe, was said, yeah, sure, you can build here if you redesign your hotel tower. Yeah. Um, Yikes. How has that got to feel for Steve Wynn, who's like built, if not his career, but at least a cornerstone of his whole persona is design master. Um, If he's told your building doesn't fit, doesn't work, isn't distinctive enough, you're going to have to rebuild. I mean, that's got to sting for him to subject himself to that. It's got to be worth money. But I'm just thinking that that has got to be a tough pill to swallow. John, what do you think about that? It's it's got to be interesting to see how that impacts the the kind of lower cost urban win model right if you're told it's not distinctive enough it's not engaging enough when the whole kind of project is predicated on Steve Wynn saying we found a way to do our level and quality of product uh, at a little lower cost in this environment and we justify it with the casino um, so if you have to now invest more capital does it work out? Clearly it does. He's agreed. I mean, they, they probably could have told him, Steve, you have to make sure people have a bear claw delivered to video poker <laughs> machines. And he would have said yes, because he really wants to get into this market. Um, even though he's, he's kind of taken lines like that in the past. Um, it, it's 
very, very interesting to see him acquiesce to this. And I, I'm going to be intrigued to see how the design evolves because it's, it's based right. on similar models to what they were going to use in Philadelphia. Those were almost the exact right. same footprints. Right. So what, what has to change? What has to get better to, to justify being able to build this there? Um, no, and, I can't wait. I can't wait to see if it's like they do an all-new design or if they take the design that they have and they like – Tweak and it and upgrade we, it. And we made it green. I mean, it's like, I can't wait to see if it's like this completely superficial change. I mean, not that color isn't important, but I can't wait to see if it's, I mean, clearly they've made significant investments in engineering the high rise superstructure to work a certain way. It's all based on their requirements for the square foot of the rooms and the service quarters that they need and all the other infrastructure like these things are complicated so it making changes is not simple um so i'm really fascinated to see how that goes dave i'm wondering what you think about this uh are you surprised that wind stuck through all of the i mean this was not an easy an easy get for him but he's stuck to it are you surprised that he did any thoughts on the on how it ended up i'm a little surprised we saw in philadelphia when started to get some pushback he left that process pretty early on so i kind of am and what's interesting is that sheldon the boston native right somehow figured out early on that yeah this isn't really going to be a slam dunk for anybody so i think we're going to focus on other areas so that's really interesting to me and i think that there's probably a story there between you know what was behind sheldon's thought process to get out so early but it looks like steve has stuck it through and it's paid off yeah, I mean, you know, if the projections work, they'll end up making money there, even despite all of this stuff. And, you know, maybe in 10 years, this will all be a, a memory and a, a glint in someone's eye and no big deal. But um, clearly, it's been, it hasn't been easy. I mean, they were, you know, they, at, at one point, the wind folks were complaining about the treatment that they were getting from the licensing people. And it sounded like uh, it wasn't super fun. Um, and they really were sort of put through the ringer. I would love to be a fly in the wall in DeRyder Butler's office right now when he's saying, yeah, well, you got to change your design, buddy. It's not cool enough. <laughs> Back I would to the just, drawing board. I would just love to be in those meetings, and I, I can't wait to see how different it is, right? If it's just, uh, yeah, we'll placate you and make a couple changes because you asked us to, and or whether it really is a significant change. It'll be really, I think it'll be really telling um, to see what comes out of this process. But you know, well, congrats to the win folks. Yeah, go ahead, John. Yeah, so, uh, again, I correct me if I'm wrong here, but they're still not out of the woods on this. They This can all be revoked come November if yeah, right. the That's referendum right. passes, right? So you're being told not only to go back to the drawing board uh, and, you know, hand over even more research and development and design money into this thing, and it could come November, and a majority of voters in Massachusetts are going to say, fine on you, we don't want casinos. And this right. whole this whole kabuki dance will have been for nothing if that. Yeah, that's possible, right? So the folks have had some degree of second thoughts, potentially. It is up for another vote. Uh, the other people that have won in in the area are putting up money to fight against it. I read an article saying that Wynn Resorts hasn't yet determined if they're going to fund the pack to, um, to try and beat that measure back. But yeah, that could happen. If it's defeated in November, then I believe that kind of kills the whole process so it could be could be all for not <sighs> all right boston boston 
Sounds fun. I would like to go visit Wynn Boston someday, so we'll see how that goes. All right. We're going to let you guys go. We're going to end this. We're going to end this excellent episode. Um, thank you guys so much for contributing. We are going to do our sure bets segment. So this is our opportunity to for us to share with you, the audience, something that we think is cool. It may be related to casinos. It may be related to Las Vegas, but it doesn't have to be. Mine frequently are not. Um, so this is something we think you might be interested in. So... John, as our guest of honor, do you have a sure bet for us tonight? Yeah, I actually uh, did all of my homework leading up to this, and I came over prepared, and I brought three, if that's okay. Oh, wow. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, me. yeah, absolutely. So the first is, um, during my most recent trip, uh, I was lucky enough to go to Carson Kitchen in uh, downtown Las Vegas, Carrie Simon's new restaurant uh, on Fremont East. One of the one of the more enjoyable meals I have had in Las Vegas in a long time. Um, a very dressed down, authentic, fulfilling experience. Uh, and the thing that really, really stood out, if it's the sherbet of the sherbet, is their uh, bacon jam. It's like this bacon smear thing that you just want to bathe in your entire life. It's so wow. good and unctuous and rich. And it's worth, it's worth going your out of way going out of your way for, especially if you're going to be at my second sure bet, uh, which is Vimp. I mean, this, this upcoming event is going to be outrageously fun. I think everyone is looking forward to it. Uh, Hunter, I'd like to thank you and Chuck, even though he's avoiding, you know, dive bombing donut bats out in the Appalachian right now, uh, <laughs> for, Putting all of your efforts into this, and and even you know Derek and the the folks at the D, for what is going to be an outrageously awesome event in a couple of weeks here, and the third, um, and this is probably what I'm most excited about, even though it's probably going to be half a year before uh, we ever get to hold them or see them, is the Apple Watch. Uh, I think uh, now, Hunter, you're going to have to be careful not to get me Boston cream on your new Apple watch when you get it. But, um, that this is probably the most personal piece of technology that's ever been released, um, by a company, let alone Apple. And I think it's, it's kind of the future of, of what we can expect in that arena and from technology as we go forward. And it's really, really exciting. I of course watched the, Apple event last week live are you, by, by Chinese lady. Yeah, are you and, fluent uh, in Mandarin now? I know yeah, I it, was, it was a very frustrating experience for the first 45 minutes, but once we got to uh, the watch, it was, uh, you know, it, it worked pretty well. Um, I'm super curious, of course. I can't wait to try one. It's going to be at least a few months before I get the opportunity, but I think it's super interesting. I'm looking forward to seeing what kind of software I get to build for it. So, yeah, I'm definitely right with you on that. I think it's going to be neat. I can't wait. And, of course, this is going to be a product that Apple will iterate on over the next couple of years. So the Apple Watch you see today will look a lot different from the Apple Watch you see in four or five years. Here's hoping it doesn't cost $5,000 every every year or two years, though, right? Well, the one that I buy won't cost $5,000. <laughs> but uh, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if there was one that you could spend that much money on if you were, uh, if you were so inclined. dedicated. Yeah, if you wanted yeah. solid gold and the like. But yeah, I agree. The Apple Watch is super interesting. All right. Dr. Dave, do you have something for us today? I do. This is based on 
my reading tonight, and it is the works of Beverly Cleary, including Ramona and Beezes. I think it's Beezes and Ramona. I always get it mixed up. Anyway, I'm, I'm rereading the Ramona books with my first grader and having a lot of fun. Cool. So, the works of Beverly Cleary. I have not read them. I am familiar with them by reputation. But, uh, yes, yeah, very good. I know that they're beloved. Pretty so. awesome stuff. Uh, cool. Um, excellent. Thank you, Dave. Uh, <laughs> I, I could not uh, let today go by without having my sure bet be iOS 8. iOS 8 came out today for the iPhone and the iPad and the iPod Touch, fifth generation. Um, and uh, so I recommend, I've been using iOS 8 for a long time through the beta period of the summer. It brings a lot of nice enhancements to your devices if you're a, an iOS user. Um, but most of all, I think it really opens up a lot of new opportunities. Um, we're already seeing some of that with software that's been released today from third parties, but um, one of the biggest biggest changes in iOS 8 is that software developers can build pieces of software that run inside other applications. So uh, that opens up an entirely new world of opportunities for folks, whether it's password manager applications that work inside Safari, or whether it's sharing easily content to different sites, or translating content, or whatever. There really, it, there's a myriad of options. But it, I, I truly think it's going to be transformative. I think the experience on these devices is going to be a lot different six months or a year from now than it was yesterday. Um, so I do think it's important, even if some of that stuff isn't obvious today to everybody else. So for those folks that do have those devices, I would totally recommend you do the upgrade. Um, there's a whole bunch of information online about all the details. I'm not going to get into it now, but uh, I think it's, it's definitely worthwhile and uh, a big step forward. So I definitely recommend it. All right. Um, please people of earth do not forget to rate the show on iTunes. Uh, it helps other people find the show. It makes us seem cool. Um, which we really like. We like to feel cool, so please make us feel cool. Go and leave a rating for the show. Leave a comment. Um, also, if you want to like comment to us, like, hey, guys, talk about this, or you guys are completely wrong, or, wow, you made a great point, um, you can go to VegasGangPodcast.com and leave those comments there. We will. You can associate them with the post for this show. You can also reach us on Twitter, at VegasGang, for the show. Um, that is it for today. Uh, thanks to everybody for being here. I want to go around the table one more time. People can, so you can tell people where they can find you on the interwebs. Dr. Dave, as always, we start with you. Where can people find you? Sure, gaming.unlv.edu or for the more personal stuff, dgschwartz.com. Mucho excelente. John Hall, where can people find you? Yeah, uh, people can find me uh, writing from time to time at VegasTripping.com uh, or on Twitter at, at John underscore A underscore Hall because I couldn't pick a longer uh, Twitter handle with more underscores in it. Um, and also, thank you guys so much for having me. Uh, I don't know if I said it earlier in the podcast, but this was a real pleasure. Thank you. Uh, it's our pleasure. Thank you for doing it. Mm -hmm. We definitely appreciate it. For folks that want to reach me, I'm at Hunter on Twitter. You can also go to VegasMate.com. I'll have an update for VegasMate for iPhone 6, 6 Plus, and iOS 8 stuff soon, as well as Vimp app and more to come. Thank you guys so much. Have a wonderful weekend.